back or is I forget. <laughs> <laughs> and the second time it was so weak the dose that it was uh, that I've smoked hash was stronger. I'm not, it may not even have been acid. <laughs> I only know of one time where I really took acid. That was Sandoz acid, and that was a giant horse capsule that I got from the University of California. Mm-hmm. And a friend and I split it. And I don't know, there must have been a whole milligram of it there. It was a gigantic thing, you know. We, we bought it for $5, took it home, and we looked at it for a while, we looked at it for a while, and we split it up. And took that, and it was just, it was the greatest thing, I'll tell you. It was, I went straight to hell, it was what happened. like a pink laser beam of truth beating straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. We are your personal dickheads. We had to drop a couple pills of JJ180 just to remember what the podcast was about because we haven't recorded in (laughs) so long. But we're back in the studio and uh, to my left is me, Anthony Wee Woo Fick Fick Trevino. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Who is the... For those of us that have read most of the book because um full disclosure i didn't finish it you guys i had 50 pages but you were close but i was close close. and larry filled me in okay uh anthony in my in in my larry way uh uh anthony is the author uh no 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 i don't do nothing no i'm just a dude that writes some things that have sometimes popped up on the internet in in print form although i will say that article uh, um that you wrote about creep show the tv show Mm mm-hmm was uh, pretty impressive. Oh, thank you. You liked it? Yeah. I did. So I, I did. Have... It was, it was the perfect mix of anger and disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, it was also funny. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so my most recent article is basically me lampooning Shudder's Creepshow series uh, for the Say You Love Satan podcast website. And they are an amazing podcast if you're into 80s horror. Yeah, I didn't hate the show as much as you did, but... Uh... It was a fucking... It was a just a sack of shit of a show. But anyway. <laughs> I liked the David Scow episode a lot. Uh, that was the only one I liked. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah, that was the one that I really liked, but I haven't watched all of it. I have, I need, still need to watch the Skip episode. And, it's terrible. Um, it, It's like watching... It, it's like seeing the last scene of a movie that was probably pretty cool. Anyway, who's right. over there in uh, the, old, uh, the old control room? Yeah, <laughs> Who, the who's, booth. who's my guy in the van out there? In the booth. With the tweedles and the doggles and the smoggles. <laughs> and the, the shots of bourbon and a an unfiltered hard cider and a yeah. beer. You're the you're in a shot of whiskey <laughs> and you these are not jokes. He has and all three of these things. You not are, even one o'clock, and yeah. You are the microchip to David's Punisher. Five o'clock somewhere. Uh, <laughs> hey everybody, I'm uh, I'm Langhorn J Tweet. All right, and I'm David Agronoff. I'm the author of Punk Rock Ghost Story and Goddamn Killing Machines, uh, which recently came out from Clash Books and could really use some love. So. And Vegan Revolution with Zombies and several other books that you should read. Yeah, but give the love to Goddamn Killing Machines because it's very Philip K. Dickian uh, meets, like, the Dirty Dozen. So hopefully, hopefully you folks will like it. Anyways, that's us. I'm still saying Heart of Darkness, but... 
No one listens to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's kind of, Ad Astra did that last year with the space heart of, heart of darkness thing. Uh, although I wrote Goddamn Collisions a long time before that. But anyways, we took a long break for various reasons. Um, there was hospitals, there was artifogs and art. Oh my god, artifogs, artifogs, artificial organs, artifog. You guys can fucking say conap right and auto auto and all this other stuff. Well, we're gonna have to say all those words for this book today. If this were a book more about artificial frogs, it'd be kind of kind of zany, but that would fit more in line with Dr. Futurity, I feel like. Yeah, so, um, I moved, Anthony's moving, and uh, Larry was in the hospital, so we had a long break. All break. right, so can we can the excuses, guys? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, PKD News. Um, well, our first bit of news is actually going to become an assignment for Anthony. Oh, cool. I'm going on a mission? You're going on a mission. Yeah. You're going to buy Heavy Metal Magazine issue number 298. <laughs> because it has a graphic novel or graphic story in it called Phil K. Dick's Head is Missing. That sounds hmm. pretty cool. Oh, yeah, what a, what a terrible mission you're sending me on to buy issues of heavy metal. Yeah, right. The thing I already <laughs> didn't collect. Right. Oh, God, I love heavy metal. So, yeah, so there's a Phil K. Dick story in there, and there's a plot synopsis here, but I think we should skip that. I think people yeah. should s- seek it out. Um, but I think with a name like Philip K. Dick's Head is Missing, I'm sure it's about the android head, but what do I know? Um, but who, who looked, wrote it? It was written by Michael David Nelson, and the artist is Dwayne Harris, I believe. Cool. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Um, Can do. Yeah. Dual, dual episode when I finally read the final blackout. Yeah. I feel weird buying uh, uh, an Elrond book, though. I feel like by buying it, Amazon <laughs> is going to put me on a specific list. Yeah. <laughs> called some kind of watch list. list. Yeah. Some kind of watch list or in some way they're going to alert the Scientology <clears throat> gang that I have now purchased this book and then they will again start sending me things in the mail. Yeah. It, uh, although it, originally it, they were sending me things in the mail because my buddy and I took a tour of the Scientology Celebrity Center and we said, "Yeah, we're interested because I wanted to." Did you more. watch their film? The like the one about how your brain can solve any problem? And- I was hit with so much crazy that day. That I don't remember anything other than uh, doing that little test where I held two cylinders, and he's like, "You must be thinking about something really <laughs> upsetting right now." And I was thinking about puppies, <laughs> and I love puppies. Well, was, if, anyone... uh, if you ever want a firsthand experience, sorry, David, if you ever yeah. want a firsthand experience with a cult, you should just take the tour because yeah. it's a place run by crazy people. Yeah, and so if anyone's wondering uh, what what this came from, if you missed uh, one of the early episodes, uh, we talked about the L. Ron Hubbard science fiction novel Final Blackout, which I'm a big fan of, and uh, Anthony promised to read it. um, And And then didn't. And for like two years now, (laughs) I've been reminding him that he promised to read the Final Blackout. So send your tweets to Anthony uh, reminding him. Hashtag read Final Blackout. So, um, th- our next segment is Dick Likes Suggestions, and I'm going to uh, guess that Langhorn has a-, a video game. I don't. You don't. Uh, no, I'm I'm going with a movie. Ooh. But it's a Netflix movie, so it's not really like a movie movie. Well, those are movie what, what movies. What does that mean? 
Well, like, the, you know, the Netflix. Irishman not a new movie movie? Netflix. It's a movie I haven't made it through. That's what it is. <laughs> I actually watched it all in one night. It was painful, but I got through it. I, I kind of followed the uh, South Park idea of Netflix where they answer the phone and go, Hi, you've called Netflix. You're greenlit. Before they even hear the idea. Crickets. Uh, crickets. crickets. Yeah, all right. Uh, it, it's called Horse Girl. Horse Girl. All right, go. You you have me interested. And it was uh, recommended to me by a fellow uh, PKD fan. So Horse Girl is about a person going through a psychological break of some sort. And there's a lot of movies out there in the independent circuit that are like this, that they tie science fiction fantasy in with mental illness. And that's what it's kind of an interesting view that, you know, there's there's a connection between the what Philip K. Dick talks about a lot is, you know, mental problems and psychosis and all this stuff and science fiction. And that's what this movie is. She is a woman that has a job, a very uh, mundane job at a, like a Michael's, you know, craft store. I am familiar with the store Michael's, yes. <laughs> and she she hasn't dated anyone in a while, and she had some traumatic experiences in the past. It, it has uh, elements of the machinist, of uh, afterbirth. And even Repo Man. Oh, man. Repo Man. So, there's a damn good movie. So, so it's like she has all these mental problems, but there is sort of something supernatural maybe going on. And okay. uh, it, it, if you like a slow burn kind of movie that has PKD elements of that sort, this is the one for you. Cool. That actually sounds really good to me. I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, check that out. Anthony, do you have a dick-like suggestion? I am going to recommend a book that, although I didn't totally love, I think fans of Philip K. Dick might enjoy. I'm going to recommend Heads by Greg Bear, which is basically hmm. about this kind of political corporate war regarding uh, whether or not we're going to wake up all these frozen heads that we have in storage from the past. And it deals a lot with kind of this family dynamic and um, whether or not you do or don't own, you know, can you own someone else's memory if they're already dead? And yeah, so I'm going to recommend Heads by Greg Bear. I didn't totally so, love it because it felt a little short, but I think folks that like a lot of the more political aspects to Dick's work would enjoy the a lot of the dialoguing that Bear writes. Although, side note, if you do you like heads? And then you decide, hey, I really like Greg Bear. You should read Blood Music, which fucking rules. And really? also you should read On America by Cody Goodfellow. And I just recently, David, finished Scum of the Earth, too. And that was great. Yeah, I liked both. But I, I honestly thought Greg Bear wrote, like, just generic stuff. No, Blood Music is all about, it, it actually takes place in, it starts in La Jolla, uh, it's about this guy who injects himself with his own kind of virus who then starts to, he basically melts and sends all the spores out into the world. And then we kind of just change the chemical makeup of the world we're living in. It's awesome. Really? Yeah. Rules. I know that's one of Cody's favorites. I, it's, that's who recommended it to yeah, me. Yeah. He recommended it to me too. I have it on the shelf. I just never read it. Um, oh, man, that's huh. good. Greg Baird. No, he's good. I know he also, you know, did some like 
tie-in work and stuff like that. So I just recently read a um, couple, like a about six months ago, I read a Star Trek novel he wrote, and it was fantastic because it was like Greg Bear writing a Star Trek novel, you know? Right. Um, and because uh, recently I I discovered that like Joe Handelman and a bunch of other like really good old school sci-fi writers wrote Star Trek novels, and so I'm kind of working my way through those. Hmm. But yeah, Greg Bear is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. Totally. And I'm pretty sure Blood Music was a previous recommendation from me. Yeah, yeah, but I think you did. Heads is cool. I, I wanted it to be weirder, but I think other folks would really dig it if you like PKD. Sounds good. All right, so for my dick-like suggestions, I, I, I have to apologize. I have 17. I know, we haven't recorded And you're going to hear about them all. No, I'm going to keep it to two, and then kind of, I'm going to shout out one of our listeners, I'm not sure who, I don't remember who now. But somebody sent me a recommendation for a sh- uh, British show that's on Amazon now called The Feed. That's like, um, that they told me was very PKD-ish. And um, I watched the pilot of that and it's great and I will continue to watch it. So you did um, just recommend it continue? <laughs> well, no, I just watched the pilot. I can't really say for the whole series, but. Cool. Um, Shout out to Unknown. Yeah. I don't remember who, but who you're out there. Uh, it was like. Two months ago, so... You're uh, out there, fellow listener. <laughs> fellow listener. So, the first book that I'm going to recommend is... Um, right after... I just recently reread um, Divine Invasions, the PKD biography, which is going to bleed into the show a bunch. But right afterwards, I read a book called The Secret Ascension, or Philip K. Dick is Dead, Alas, by Michael Bishop. And it is a science fiction novel from 1986. And it um, has this really insane cover that um, for the paperback edition, which you can see has... Uh, Is that Richard Nixon with a crown? Yes, because this takes place <laughs> in an alternate future, or an alternate past, I should say, where Philip K. Dick has just died, but he, in this book, in this world, um, Richard Nixon is in his fourth term in the in the late 80s, and Philip K. Dick is the author of many mainstream novels, um, like Voices from the Street and Mary and the Giant, that were huge successes. And in this future, uh, Philip K. Dick's underground science fiction novels uh, are banned by the Nixon administration. And huh. um, so it's like kind of the inverse of his career. And it's a really interesting look at Philip K. Dick. and. One of the things that's interesting is because some of the sci-fi books that he wrote in secret, um, they have titles that, that Flow My Tears, the policeman said, is a novel in this world. But the, uh, the novel that he wrote in that world is called They Scan Us Darkly, not Scanner Darkly. And then there's one called The Doctor in the High Dungeon. Nice. And so they're like... I would 150% read that book. So it's it's like uh, inside jokes to dick fans. So it should be called The Doctor in the Low Dungeon. Right. But it, <coughs> right. And one of the interesting parts of this is that one thing that I expected that all Michael Bishop was going to do was like take his actual novels that he wrote and put them into this world as these underground novels. And like Vallis is published in this world, but that's really the only one of his um, science fiction novels, but one of the interesting things is he makes up a PKD book called The Dream Impeachment of Harper Mackham. Okay. And, um, this book is about, and it's really interesting because 
it ties into when I was reading this was right in the middle of the impeachment fight in DC. And in this, um, the collective unconscious of America impeaches the president Nixon. Hmm. Right. Um, and which is a really weird and interesting concept. And it sounds like a PKD novel, but, um, so it's not just about PKD. There's also this alternate future that's kind of similar to the Watchmen with Vietnam, like existing in the future. There's a moon base. There's King Richard Nixon. There's domestic travel bans. There's all kinds of weird stuff. Uh, it's a lot of PKD pastiche and a lot of inside jokes that would be really good for, for serious dickheads. So, um, I definitely recommend the, the secret ascension. And I wrote a very detailed review on my blog. Um, and that's the first uh, of my recommendations. And the other one is a military sci-fi novel called The Light Brigade that came out last year from an author named Cameron Hurley. And if you, Cameron Hurley kind of came on the scene a couple of years ago with a series, but her big breakout hit, she had a series that was the Bell Dame Apocrypha. Um, and I read that and I wasn't that into it because it was a little bit too fantasy for me. But... Uh, she released a book a couple of years ago called The Stars Are Legion, which was this insane body horror space opera weirdness with living ships. And it was an all lesbian, like all female future. And then like people like actually have to give birth to parts of their bio organic ship in this war. And it's really cool. It's nice. fucking crazy. And so Light Brigade is her follow up to that, but it's not in the same universe. But Light Brigade is like a, it's part Starship Troopers, part 1984, but lots of like mind twisting. 100% less military wanking. Well, yes, <laughs> there is that because, uh, Cameron Hurley is definitely, I uh, got on the left side of politics. And, um, but it has this really cool, like, time travel like what is reality who is human what is really happening thing going on i don't want to spoil it but i just want to say it's very much about ptsd like uh weston oaks books and um i know he approved of its military sci-fi-ness and since he's the military guy um i would say the best way to explain this is it's starship troopers meets slaughterhouse five cool all right nice the light brigade by cameron hurley and i that's a good it. elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and and now don't ruin it by continuing to discuss the book. <laughs> no, I'm done. Next. So, uh, now wait for last year was released in the year 1966. David, <clears throat> what was happening in the year 1966? Well, the continued escalation of the Vietnam War, uh, like, was the main story in the news. Inflation grew at a massive rate because of it. The U.S. and the USSR first uh, really kicked off their moon race. So this is three years before oh, we wow. landed on the moon. So that would make it 53 years ago. What did they uh, – do you know what they sent to space? Or did no, they send a dog or a monkey or <laughs> – No, they were already sending humans. I mean, this Oh, okay. They did I'm... that in the 50s. So. Okay. So we were, they were. So doing, we were, we're well past that. No, we were doing Gemini at the time with spacewalk. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, we had uh, race riots that all over the country was a big thing. Uh, the biggest albums of the year were the Beach Boys with Pet Sounds. Nice. The Rolling Stones with Under My Thumb, and nice. the Beatles with Revolver. 
So all all good albums. Big year for classic rock, right. or I guess rock, rock at, the, at time. the time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, big pretty, year for all that dad rock. Pretty much invented the Pro Tools that you guys listen to these days. Right. And uh, oh, have we ever gotten to my feelings about the Beatles, Larry? Oh, I hate the Beatles. Me too. But the uh, I'm talking about the Beach Boys. Uh, oh yeah, no, the Beach Boys are solid. What? Well, they you like the Beach Boys. I would take the Beatles over the Beach Boys. I can't fucking stand the Beatles. I'm not a big Beatles fan either. But I welcome back to the Beatle box. <laughs> <laughs> what else was going on in 1966, David? Um, that's all I got. That's 1966. But right. I think that gives us a good uh, feeling for uh, when this book was released, and right. I I think the atmosphere involving the Vietnam War. Uh, lays heavy into the rewrite of this book, which was originally yeah. originally written in 1963. The first draft was in 1963, after the simulacra and before the zap gun. Pew, pew. So, and uh, <laughs> but it, more importantly, was that when Doubleday accepted it, they requested a heavy rewrite. So in 1965, there was a a, a a very top to bottom rewrite draft. So this is not an ace. This is not an ace, but it is dedicated to Mr. Don Wolheim. Really? Yeah. So huh. yeah. In fact, even though uh, Doubleday published this one, uh, is dedicated quote to Don Wolheim, who has done more for science fiction than any other single person. Thank you, Don, for your faith in us over the years, and God bless you. Wow. Um, so, written what? by Don Wolheim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the dedication. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, no, I do believe that between Don Wolheim and Anthony Boucher, I think are the two people that I think PKD had more love for Anthony Boucher than he did Don Wolheim, but I think he cared very heavily for both of them right? because of the place they played in his career. Mm-hmm. Boucher gave him more freedom and I Don Wolheim gave him more money. Yeah. And Anthony Boucher was local to him and, and the person I'm, he spent time with. And if I'm remembering, Wolheim gave him his start. Yeah. yeah. So, and Wolheim was, his relationship was all conventions and on the phone and Anthony Boucher was somebody he was actually in writing groups with. So, that, oh. that would be a huge difference, but uh, he's already dedicated books to Boucher before. Uh, the manuscript for Now uh, Wait for Last Year first reached the SMLA agency on December 4th, 1963. The novel was sold to Doubleday and published in hardback. So hmm. this was a hardback release. Um, well, I, I, I have a question for Anthony. Yes. Now that you've read mostly the whole book, mm-hmm. how do you feel about the title? Because last episode you were... You didn't like the title at all. And we liked the title. Uh, I think it works. Incredibly indifferent to the title. All right. Well, that's better than hating it. Yeah. I mean, I hate all kinds of things that I don't actually hate. Yeah. This I'm is... just indifferent to them. Uh, you know, not... like babies. <laughs> I don't hate babies. I just don't care about babies. It's the exact same thing. And, uh, so this title is like a baby <laughs> <laughs> that I don't like. Um, no. <laughs> I was thinking about that as I was reading it. I'm still not sure I understand how the title's relevant to the book. And maybe well, it's actually just... a line. It, oh, not, okay. Not Is quite it... in the book, but but near enough. 
Well, an interesting thing about the title is that the title was PKD's title, and yeah. it stuck from when it when uh, the agency got it in December of '63. And it's interesting also to see that it took five year or two years for them to get acceptance for this novel, and how many he published in between. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that it's one that um, Don Wolheim must have turned it down. You you, you just yeah. have to figure. Yeah, that at some point, at some point, Wolheim had some reason why he didn't want to do it, and it's pretty clear that the rewrite was pretty. Well, bad. it never really goes to space, except for that one scene. Well, they go to Mars. That except for that one scene is what I said. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so I, as far as Wolheim turning it down, I think. I would imagine that the first draft... There's no space pirates in this. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Where's the action? Um, there is a war. Uh, the war is pretty background, though. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, Which is fine. That's yeah, fine. it's fine. But The I, book ends with him saying, fuck the war. <laughs> right. Which I think was just something that was added in the interim, but we'll get yeah, to right. the about that. <laughs> um I think the 1963 version must have been quite a bit different um, between what eventually sold. And I'm not sure – there's no notes on whether SM at the Scott Meredith Agency or Doubleday asked for the rewrite. But there was – that rewrite happened. And it could be because it didn't sell for two years that the agency said, like, hey, take another crack at this and let's make it better. Uh, but Doubleday did eventually take it, and it was a science fiction uh, book club book for Doubleday. So that was a pretty big deal for, for PKD at the time. Well, that, that was sort of the thing he he talked about in interviews where, sure, he got the exposure, but he never really got paid a lot for those. Yeah, but we do have only a couple quotes from PKD talking about this book, mostly in relation to other ones. Anthony? Yes. Well, we touched on another topic in the interview I had with those people, and that was my attitude toward drugs. They said, isn't there an affinity between you and Timothy Leary's attitude toward drugs? And I said, well, actually a scrupulous reading of my novels that deal with drugs such as Three Stigmata, Now Wait for Last Year, Faith of Our Fathers, and A Maze of Death show the possibility, again we get into the area of possibility, not certitude, that there are really just a whole number of things happening in Three Stigmata and to now wait for last year. The drug the drug is destructive, it's addictive, it's used as a government weapon, as a matter of fact. Yeah, which I think is cool, because I think you're getting a window into the fact that he saw the drug as, as a weapon, and it wasn't supposed to be like, yay, rod, JJ. <laughs> excuse, excuse me. Uh, P.K. Excuse me, this is my radio voice. Uh, P.K.D.'s relationship with drugs is quite interesting. As <clears throat> we've seen, it's interesting when you look at the people who love Dick's work versus Dick's actual attitude toward drugs. Yeah. Because it seems like he struggles with his own personal enjoyment of it. Yeah. Whereas, uh, aside from uh, s- some people, those of us who do enjoy... Uh, who dabble. Who dabble in illicit substances seem to sometimes read it differently. Mm. But I do want to, and David, I don't mean to put you on the spot totally, mm. but as somebody that is drug stri- free, drug free <laughs> what do you, how do you perceive Dick's relationship with drugs? Well, it depends. For me, it's very obvious that he demonizes them. Yeah. But 
Well, he demonizes them the same way he demonizes his ex-wives, in the sense of, It's good up until I don't like it anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah. His relationship with drugs is very similar to his relationship with his wives, and, and where, That's like... fair enough. That, that they're... I think he loves the drugs, what they can do for them in the moment, but doesn't like how they make him feel later. And he certainly was offended by Harlan Ellison calling him a whacked out drugo. A doper. <laughs> a doper. A damn doper. Right. And he really did not want that um, association. And I do think that in in the wake of his um, divorce with Nancy, when he went through the scanner, the phase that inspired Scanner Darkly, I think that's when I think he was fine with drugs until that phase. And I think after that, I, he saw some, I think he saw some pretty horrible shit and did some horrible shit to himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he says that in the introduction to Skinner Darkly, that yeah. he lost friends to it. And I, so I do think at this point, he doesn't have a super rosy view of drugs, mm-hmm. but I think he's in the in-between phase here. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I was just curious because a lot of dick fans tend to be folks who like to dabble in hallucinogens and yeah, things and I, like that. But I just wonder if anybody else kind of reads it as dick is not in support of most drugs for, for the most part. Yeah. And I know that makes me kind of a weirdo as far as being a PKD head is that I don't that, think that it, I'm straight edge, but I don't I, think it makes you a weirdo. I think it makes sense if you understand that. Throughout most of the books we've been reading, the drugs are a weaponized tool. Well, no, they're they're used for utility. Basically, what he did I mean, in his weapon, real life—a weapon can be a you utility. Know, yeah, he, you know, for the most part, Dick viewed drugs as a a way to achieve his goals. Well, and and, 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 and that's sort of what he does in at least in this book is it's a way to achieve a goal. But and it, it's, ne- it's not viewed as good or evil. I don't know. In Three Stigmata, it's, it's pretty, used. It's it's pretty it's evil. pretty cut and dry. It's it's used as a utility that is perceived as being evil at the end of the day. Even though I don't agree with it, yeah, well, I don't agree with his take on the drug in Three Stigmata. Fucking god, it looks so good. Um, but I go ahead, Larry. I didn't mean to. Cut well, you off. I no, you didn't cut me off. I, I I think in Three Stigmata, he he doesn't view it as good and evil. I think it's more. Uh, it, it again is utility. The people that are in the colonies are like, let's take drugs and get out of this. Well, because their shithole. existence is garbage. Yeah, exactly. Whereas in, whereas in this, though, I, they mentioned several times that the JJ 180 is basically it, a it, tool it's called for a weapon. But then again, it's also a weapon that is not going to work. Sure, you know they they immediate, immediately says it's a weapon that everybody has already solved and it's not going to work as a weapon. So we'll get more into that, but uh, do you think that that has roots in things like MK Ultra using L- trying to test out LSD to use as a weapon? But I yeah, guess, well, but I guess we didn't know that. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't think he knew anything about that uh, except for what Ken Kesey was saying about mm-hmm. the tests and what was going on with the. Sorry, I've been listening to way too much stuff they don't want you to know. <laughs> uh, so, the only other quote we have specifically about No Way for Last Year is from a letter in 1967 that PK Day wrote to his friend. PK Day? PK Day. <laughs> that's for our Australian listeners. Um, but. Uh, that's the, for the Deant word, PKD listeners. <laughs> So, uh, he had a friend named <laughs> Cynthia, apparently, uh, that he wrote a letter to that, uh, I believe Lawrence Sutton got a hold of this for his research for Divine Invasion. This is a good quote. 
from a 1967 letter that Philip K. Dick wrote to a good friend named Cynthia. The war depresses me, too. I think we ought to get out of Vietnam. I don't usually talk politics, but on this point, I'm rabid. I wrote my feelings out in a recent Doubleday book of mine called Now Wait for Last Year, in which Earth is on the wrong side in an interstellar war and is just beginning to realize it. Earth's political leader wants to get out, but how? I think you and Lou will both prove the underlying theme of the book, the horrid intimation of being involved on the wrong side in the wrong war. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now uh, now that you put it in context, I can kind of see why this book wasn't as popular as maybe it should have been. Because it was if it's anti-war or in the book, you, you, you go to the opposite side to achieve victory. That would that would be totally anti-American at the time, right? Because if if you're in oh. Vietnam and you want to win the war or the conflict, whatever they were calling it at that point, I think the opposition to the war was already starting. Although I don't know if, being that he was living in Northern California, that they were a little ahead of the rest of the country on it. Um, right, but this was a, this was a book club book. That's true. So it's it's out there in the in the so, so are you and saying that maybe people population. received it and thought, oh, no, to hell with this hippie anti-war propaganda. Yeah, I kind of, I, I, I kind of feel like it might have gone that route. I wish I, I had learned that aspect of it more before I read it because it does change how I look at the book now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would say that part of the problem that I see what you're saying with the book clubs that there may have been some people that were not into the anti-war part of it, but I think the left-leaning sci-fi reader was probably already there in 96. Or, or in 80, or 66. <laughs> Did you say 90, 80, you say 90, 86? 80, 86. 86. It's 66. 96. <laughs> uh, I, sorry. 2006. I just had a, a JJ 180 flashback. Yeah, uh, right. Took me out of time. <laughs> oh, what was but, 2006 like? Lots of Jinko jeans. <laughs> But um, I, I think that probably the lefty sci-fi readers were already with them on that. So I, I don't know yeah, that that but... was the problem. But so much of this novel is influenced by the fact that it was rewritten during the phase when Anne and Phil were separating. And that has a huge part to do with what I think. What? I didn't pick up on that at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, a, a quote from uh, Divine Invasion. um but this cluster of husband-wife sanity bouts fairly indicates that in committing Anne, Phil took an action that he felt was necessary and ultimately loving for the record. Anne does not suffer from insanity or brain damage. Oh, yeah, by the way, Phil had Anne um, committed. <laughs> during, in real life? In real life. During oh, okay. Um, and Anne does not suffer uh, from insanity or brain damage after Phil left the marriage. She built up a successful jewelry business. However, so obviously we'll get more into the, the signs that, 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 that divorce affected what was going on. Yeah. And even though the, his divorce and his marriage to Nancy happened, bam, boom, there yeah. was, um, there was a good two years of the marriage being kind of on rocks and having problems. Where they were kind of on again, off again, and during that. Okay, time, so this is the PKD pattern. 
Right, but he wrote of, of the crossover two year crossover marriage thing. Yeah, but he was in flux during the time when he wrote this. He was moving in and out of his house with his family and doing all this stuff. And I personally think that affected this rewrite heavily. That's just my opinion. So uh, uh, one thing I want to know, Kathy is Anne, right? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that way. Yes. Yikes. And, um, whether, and I mean, yikes for, for Anne reading this. Right. And going, Oh, that's how you view me. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then one other interesting thing about the writing of it, and then we'll get into the story breakdown is, um, the last thing, um, I want to point out is that the wash 35 is specifically based on a year that PKD spent in DC as a child. His mother moved him across country for one year and they lived in Washington, DC and it just happened to be 1935. So Hmm. this is very specifically pulled out of his memory because, um, and a lot of PKD scholars have kind of compared this to the fake, to wash 35 to the city and time out of joint. And, uh, so in Divine Invasion, it says, uh, page 94, so the military built a fake 1958 <laughs> town similar to his childhood, similar to Wash 35, baby land of now wait for last year to keep. And this was at the time when his mom was working for the Department of Defense in C. Right. And uh, a fascinating thing from his childhood. So on that note. Oh, is it time? I believe it's time <laughs> for the story <laughs> breakdown. <laughs> Whoa. Woo wee. <laughs> What's up with that? Come on, Larry. What I- is up with that? Get in there. Story breakdown. Wow. Guitar. Yeah. Yeah, let's do guitars. You need to add some like funky, like James Brown or Rick James bass line for the story breakdown. I'll add the big payback. How about some Parliament Funkadelic? Oh, that would work. Some of that opening to Flashlight. Right. Great opener. All right, Larry, tell me about this book that I didn't finish. (laughs) So, uh, what is the name of this one? Oh, fuck (laughs) off. Now Uh, wait for last year. Now Wait for Last Year by Philip K. Dick. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, establish some things first. Humanity did not originate on Earth. Humanity is a part of the Lilliputians who split from the Lilliputian or Lillistar. Is that a real place, David? No. no. Beetlejuice is a real place, which there's Beetlejuicens. Right, there's a, there's one Beetlejuice guy. Yeah. Some, one juicer. Uh, He's juiced up. <laughs> so, Lilistar, or the Starmen, we'll call them the Starmen, mm. uh, are, are, are the progenitors of humanity. Humanity and Mars both got colonies from the Starmen, and then the Earth and Mars got into a war, and the Earth won, Mars died out, Etc. Etc. Humanity lives. So then the starmen come back and they're like, "Hey, we've got this war going on with these uh, bug people. 
we don't like them and you're part of it now. And then our leader, Gino Molinari goes, all right, fine, whatever. Let's do that. So that's kind of where this story comes from. But our first chapter has nothing to do with any of that. Our first chapter is about a dude that hates his wife and a wife that hates her dude. In a Philip K. Dick book, an opening <laughs> chapter about a guy who hates his wife. Yeah, it's basically, it the starts, start as it starts with our hero who is named Eric Sweetscent. I wish we had read this before we did that. That, that, that the, the names thing. On names, on names, yeah. But Eric Sweetsent, Dr. Eric Sweetsent. Dr. Daddy Sweetsent. Yeah, right? Uh, he has to pay a bill to <laughs> a robant. Dumb name. It's a great name. It's a, a great, horrible name. All right, so he has to pay a bill because his wife bought a pack of cigarettes six months ago. And uh, he's like, uh, fine, I'll pay the bill. And the thing's like, pay the bill or you're going to jail. Dude, he gets rolled by a robot. Yeah, he, he does get rolled by a robot. A robant. I'm sorry, a robant. Damn it. All right. You so. owe money for cigarettes. <laughs> Pay now or go to jail. Like, fuck you, robot. So then he goes to work where he's the uh, anti-frog surgeon. I swear to God. <laughs> Artifork. Artificial organ. I think that's what I said. You said artifrog. No, I said anti-frog. Oh, okay. <laughs> Isn't that how it's spelled? Uh, artifrog? No. no it's artiforg. artiforg. It's artiforg. Trust me. <laughs> Trust so he's the anti- me. So he's the anti-frog surgeon for an old guy named Virgil Ackerman. Which I just real quick want to point out that she does berate him for not being successful enough. And I'm over here thinking, oh, no. Organ transplant? That seems pretty lucrative. It, se- it yeah. seems all right, but she got him his job, so oh. she's like. But I guess if you're an organ you're kind of transplant a pussy. surgeon, I mean, you're 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 fucking slumming it in this world. I yeah. would think Doctor Sweetson would be good enough for a Jewish mother. I mean, right? He's a doctor, right? And he's a sweet. Son. Just find someone with a good jaw. <laughs> all right, so so he uh, old man Virgil Ackerman uh, is is crazy. Because he wants to be a little boy in his childhood. But he's also super rich and has a large family. His daughter has the hots for uh, our our fair doctor. And uh, she's like, uh, so you want to do it? As they're going to wash 72 or whatever it is. Whatever David just said. It's like wash 35. 35. Wash 35, which has no has nothing to do with what's going on in the book. Whatsoever. He just wanted to reminisce about his one year in DC. Yeah, and this is how he did it. So he, uh, they go to Wash 35 and it's a secret mission to meet the, uh, prime, he, what is his name? The lead, the UN the secretary. head commander, uh, prime secretary, Gino Molinari, who is a big fat, um, it's a big fat Italian guy. Big fat Italian guy. Yeah. Hey. He's yeah. he's a strap in. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Hey. He's a he's the Tony Soprano of uh of the future. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And so I he's he's, he's just eating pasta and <laughs> shrimps with 
Horseradish. It, it, fried prawns with horseradish. Not as a meal, but as a late That's night snack. That's a snack. If I ate that as a late night snack at any, or at any point, I'd die. And he's, well. <laughs> he usually so hangs cool. out at his capital in Cheyenne, Wyoming, for some reason. Uh, because the, uh, the country's been split or, I, I have no idea what, whatever. So, uh, Molinari's like, uh, so I'm here, you're here, you're supposed to fix me. But what I really want you to do is murder me when you're operating on me. And our fair doctor is like, yeah, that's no problem. I, I don't have, I don't have any qualms about murdering you because I don't care about life. I'm in such a bad marriage that I give no shits about life whatsoever. That's how bad marriage is. I am marriage well, is so, so shocked that this isn't a dick book though. <laughs> marriage is so bad. I don't care about life. Well, in any form. Any, I don't, I don't, I don't care. I will scorched earth everything. Because marriage is so bad. He is a doctor, but he was working at a fur company in TJ. <laughs> so, like, well, uh, you want me to mention the fur company? Well, All right, talk so about the so, fur company later. So I got a lot let's, of let's explain how Virgil got his riches through uh, living bat guano from Mars <laughs> that turns into fur coats. Yeah, I when it talk wants about to that later. I, but I that's, that's also like very much doesn't matter. And, uh, the fur coats, uh, when the war starts, he's like, fur coats aren't going to cut it. Let's make bombs you know out of back guano. Yeah, so, that was funny. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, I had to get up to lift a weight a couple times. Yeah. It's, it's on camera. Uh, yeah. So then, uh, they come to an agreement. Uh, Sweet Scent goes to work for Molinari. He finds out the in and outs of what's politically happening between the war, uh, the war going on between the, the starmen and the, the bug-like Reeks. Mm-hmm. The Reeks. And he finds out some other things. He finds out that there are different versions of Molinari. And he's very confused by this. I love that. And they assume, he assumes that they are simulacra. Which we have experienced many times in dick books at this point. He had to check off using that term because he had to use all, <laughs> all his terms. Because there's they're simulacrum, precogs, conapt, wheels, homeopapes. Homeopapes. Con- yeah. I mean, everything. it's all part of the dickiverse. Right? Let's see. Uh, auto, autofact wasn't used, though. No, autofact was used. Was it? Autofact, homeopapes, conapt, um, Artiforg. Artiforg. Antifrogs. Robants. Robant. And precogs. All used. Alright, but, but we, we need to Tarantino here. We need to go back a little and talk about what, what, uh, Katie, Caddy, Cardi, Catherine. Man, Quentin Tarantino's now wait for last year. (laughs) (laughs) What, uh, what the wife was up to. So, uh, what the, and what I think All is right. the best scene in the entire book is when we go to this drug party that Dr. Sweetsense's wife is at and, and they do, they do this drug called JJ 180 that no one's ever done before. As far as they know, they have no idea what the drug is going to do. They're like, 
let's let's have a party and let's take a drug that we have no idea what it's going to do. And they got it from a cabbie who is a scumbag. And and it, like we find out this guy's a scumbag very quickly. He is a dirty and his teeth are rotten. And the guy he's talking to is like, I wish he would just go away. They should have gotten an automatic and it, that could have given it them advice. very much, very much reminded me of a Ralph Bakshi scene. That automatic cab's a fucking coward, though. <laughs> All right, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. All right, so anyway, they go to this party. Her titties are out, and and they've got <laughs> and they've got living nipple. She has living. Nipples. I didn't do it this time. No, it was him this time. <laughs> okay, and uh, and they take the drug, and weird shit happens. They disappear, and they get freaked out and shit like that. And there's a swami there. Doesn't matter. Anyway, oh, you're talking about what, that long-haired doofus. What what happens? Is um, what is her Kathy? Mm-hmm. Kathy becomes addicted immediately. She gets blackmailed by the Starmen to go spy on her husband, who has left her to go be the president's uh, doctor. All right, so that happens. She goes there. She's like, "I'm here because I I, I want to hang out or whatever." And our our heroes like, "Yeah, no, you don't. You're fucked up." I can tell you're fucked up because you're fucked up. And then she's like, oh, shit, you found out I'm fucked up. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to call the cops on you. And then she's like, no, you're not, because I'm going to drug you and you're going to be an addict, too, fucker. And then he's like, oh, shit, you drugged me. And now I'm I'm an addict, too. I'm going to the future and I'm going to go to the future. And this weird guy, this weird smarmy guy is going to try to con me. And then I'm going to come back to the past. And then I'm going to figure out that the president is going to have a heart attack in like a little while, but I don't care because I'm going further into the future so I can find a cure for myself and my wife because I deeply care about this woman that wants to destroy me in every way possible. And then just can't quit her. Yeah. And she is a great character, by the way. But anyway, the, so he gets the cure. He meets a, a Ganymedian slime mold or whatever it is in a, in a, in a business suit. And, uh, it tells him like, you know, all the, all the facts of life are, are happening. And Molinari's actually doing the same thing you're doing. And he's like, Oh shit, that makes total sense. And then he goes back to the future, but or back to the past, but he doesn't go all the way back to the past. He goes to a year or a year from his timeline a year forward from his timeline and meets himself and himself is like, Hey, do all this stuff for me and, and make my life not suck. And he's like, yeah, I'll do all that stuff for you. He achieves none of the stuff. (laughs) And he basically doesn't take, he takes everyone's advice and fucks everything up. And then the, the war gets worse. Molinari dies. We find out that Molinari has not only brought in people from other time his himself from other timelines, but uh he has died the the real Molinari from this timeline is dead. And uh then uh, that doesn't matter either. And then uh so uh, by the end our hero has ruined his entire life and is now dedicated to a wet brain, ugly wife who sucks and 
the war doesn't matter. That's the end. Wow. Sorry, I had to rush through that end. The guy fucking sucked. But did you like it better until that last chapter? I did. Yeah. I did. See, I just, I'm going to ignore the last chapter <laughs> in, my, in my... In your final judgment? In my final judgment, because um, just like kind of like for me, I the Skywalker saga ended with Last Jedi, and it has a great ending. Yeah, you know, right. Um, <laughs> If you look at it that way. Oh, the future is bright from here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I did have uh, – the first thing in my notes was the listing of all the names, which we've kind of already gotten into, all the words, the PKD terms, where this is very – this novel is very P- PKD. Shinary. Yeah. It, it is – like, if you were playing a, a game to, like, cross off all the terms and words, with this one really has it. It's, yeah. it's basically, yeah, a dictionary. Ooh, right. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> and as far as uh, a novel goes, it is very, it's very PKD. It is. Yeah. Um, but for me, uh, well, let's get into some of the things that are going on. There's the divorce stuff is insane here uh, it's in the it's forefront front and center yeah yeah and so there's there's quotes that we gotta we gotta get into directly and okay. <clears throat> uh it welcome so- to the philip k dick divorcepedia yeah um on page six there's a quote that <laughs> i think oh we're starting early <laughs> yeah page six right there by the x <clears throat> presently jonas ackerman shrugged and said well that's marriage these days Legalized hate. Whoa! That is just shot fired right at the yeah. very beginning. And it doesn't get better in the terms of what how it talks about uh, divorce. Um, as far as page 85, we, then we get into uh, Willie Kay saying, In marriage, the greatest hatred is possible between human beings that can be generated. Perhaps it's because of the constant proximity Perhaps because once there was love, intimacy is there, even though the love element has disappeared. Yikes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, not feeling great about the, the, the institution of marriage here, um, in 1965 when we rewrote this one. Have we found a book yet where he is? Positive <laughs> yeah, about, right. marriage. about marriage <laughs> or just relationships in general? Well, your no. silence tells me everything, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh there there are books later that I think that he gives a, a lot of love to to Tessa uh, during their relationship, but and, and but not so far. But not so far. And I think maybe during the the early Nancy years we might see some some of that. But, I I feel like it's uh, I feel like this is just one of those melodramatic things he, he he was known for right was just looking at relationships in this well full-on negative way and he was kind of and avoiding talking about the good part predisposed to being melodramatic yeah and grumpy about the the, the marriages and the, melodramatic it, yeah. grumpy um prone to f- not fabricating but embellishing stories so right. it, like if you're a writer who's had one marriage and it's okay to good you're gonna have different views from somebody who's on marriage four already it just ended marriage four 
But do yeah. you think or, about or three, right three. around the time is you it, get to marriage four? Three. Yeah, this three. is marriage three. Maybe the problem is you? The problem is definitely him. <laughs> and he, yeah. th- there's a part in here where he talks about that, where he's like, I, can't, I don't know if I highlighted it, but he's like, uh, where he's like, you know, I'd just do it again, you know? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have that. He's like, if I divorce Kathy, I'll marry again because as my brain basher puts it, brain my brain basher puts it, I can't identify outside of the role of husband and daddy and big butter and eggs man wage earner. Oh man. And the next big dip, butter and eggs man dick. It, it, this is page seven. And the next damn one will be the same because that's the kind I select. Oh, it's rooted in my temperament. The next time I get into an argument with someone, I'm going to say, hey, listen, I'm the butter and eggs man here. <laughs> well, and it is, it, it, he's just going to select another one and get into this situation again. Well, see, this is a, is what he's, this saying. is one of those things, David, where you should definitely say, you know, Dick was a man of his time. Just thinking of, you know, being the, it, the sole it's, provider. It's his choice of, of yeah. what happens. The woman doesn't necessarily even come into the the picture. It's just what he wants. Yeah. And we know that he was in the process of divorcing Anne, and part of the tension between him and Anne was that she had this jewelry business and was starting to make more money than he was. Right. She had her own life. Yeah. She didn't need his, you know, how many... She need no middling sci-fi man to take care of her. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Successful as business, dog. Go get in your hovel and write because I can't have you in the house being this way. Yeah. yeah. And, and on top of all that, like, so this, this is where a lot of all this attitude is coming from. But, um, and yeah, and. Do you think he feels unneeded then? Yeah. And that's why he's channeling so much <laughs> fucking aggression. Oh, right. yeah. Yeah. And it, for me, the fact that this happens on page six and seven, just and having just re- just read reread his biography, like it made me laugh and just like stuck with me through a lot of the book, like where I was just kind of hanging over my because I just kept seeing him like writing this, being like that goddamn man, <laughs> fucking shit, right? You know, while he was typing away, <laughs> right? And so uh, that did color a lot of my feelings of this book, but. But it's it, not fair or right because I should judge the book based on to play uh, amateur psychologist. I would also say, you know, his main characters being doctors a lot of the time seems to be that he feels like he underachieved at this point in his life. You know, that uh, just being a sci-fi writer was an underachievement, so that he felt like part of the reason the women didn't treat him properly or the way he felt he should be treated was his own fault for not being as successful as he could have been. Sure. I think that comes across pretty clearly. I mean, (laughs) pretty clearly in this book. (laughs) Um, Yeah. The feelings are just below the surface. I can imagine that if you were, I don't think Anne was reading his books, but if she was, um, she would definitely well, have a hard like time. I, with- like I've said in a past episode, there's that uh, documentary where she's like, she realized that he, the way he looked at her was as she was some monster. Right. You know, by reading his, his later books about her. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, uh, well, okay. So maybe she did read them. Um, she did. 
Uh, I, I, I'm sorry. At, so, at some point, she read that. <laughs> right now, uh, he got out of the. He got out of this, but I. I would say I imagine a lot of his friends probably got a good laugh reading most of his books, like seeing like the way he transferred a lot of his feelings here and there. Yeah, they are so. really. They're really purple. Yeah, you know, uh, at least uh, up to this point. But then, then you get those. The, the purple parts that really kind of matter in the in the sci-fi sense is the drug stuff. Yeah, he yeah. he does an incredible you know? job of representing all those drug trips very fluidly and very yeah, uh, and not just the the drug trips themselves, but the experience around the drug trips and the like crash the ups, that usually comes after the downs. Yeah, yeah. all that stuff. I want to I want to talk a little bit later about JJ one eighty, but. Uh, Right now, I do want to lighten the mood a little bit by talking about some of the fucking hilarious stuff. That is There's a book. lot of funny in this one. There's a lot of funny in this book. Uh, underrated. Uh, first off is on page nine when uh, they introduce the um, uh, what the their company in TJ and Tijuana does. Yeah. And and by the way, it's cool that this book is set here in San Diego and Tijuana. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I enjoyed that aspect of it too. So as I have uh, a lot of pride in my city, and I'm not afraid to say it. So yeah, yeah, cool. So Anthony, read read me a part here that I. All love. right. Well, thank you all for joining the TFND uh company. <laughs> I'd like to welcome you to your first day here at TFND, <laughs> and uh, to give you a little hi- insight and history into what we do here. Once the corporation had collected the dung of the Martian flatbed, had made its first returns that way, and so had been in position to underwrite the greater economic aspects of another non-terrestrial creature, the Martian print amoeba. And so it's kind of fun that uh, there's this little kind of animal rights thing going on here, which I'm a big animal rights person, so that's cool for me, that their fur company basically takes uh, Martian batshit <laughs> amoebas that uh shapeshift into the fur coats and so that's what they and so the big concern is, is that uh well what if your amoeba fur coat just suddenly decides to regress into big fucking into amoebas into amoebas while you're out uh, uh strolling around town and uh but uh, i just this this is a uh, one of the funniest things in the book they uh, do kill the amoebas though david they do kill the amoebas, um, which is not great, but um, I think it's... I, you Does know. your animal rights go that, that deep? No. Okay. But I do... Uh, I it's would... good to know limits. <laughs> Jesus. Well, I don't eat honey, but I, 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 I'm not really concerned. But about... you, you'd smack at a mosquito if it was trying to bite you. Now, if there were really... You guys. If I would not... If I can avoid... That's an honest question. No, I don't kill bugs if I don't have to. What does that have to do with the book? But anyways... Um, it has to do with life. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, <laughs> Papa Midnight. I hadn't really thought about the, the use of Martian uh, bat shit, as whether it's vegan or not. But I would definitely think that it would not be vegan. I'm just curious what a Martian bat looks like. Yeah. Probably it's like something out of Stephen King's The Mist, I'm assuming. Ooh, that would be nice. Right. Uh, my other favorite, um, funny, just weird thing in this book, uh, little subtle thing is on page 73 when, uh, Kathy goes into the kitchen and she, quote, twisted the knob for so- soft boiled eggs, coffee, and right. toast and coffee with cream. But so- then later she has to cut an onion. I don't understand. 
Yeah, I just like that she has a knob where it's just like, well, you can three D print toast, eggs, and coffee, but you cannot three D print onion slices. <laughs> Sliced onions, right? And so, anyways, those are just some of my favorite funny weird things. Were there some other parts that really cracked you guys up in this book? Um, I mean, Molinari's eating habits. Basically, is and, and Molinari as a character was hilarious. Yeah, he's almost a cartoon. Yeah, he's almost <laughs> like in a, a New Yorker cartoon. Yeah, yeah, I got a lot of stuff about him later. I like that New notes, Yorker but... cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is pretty funny, and the fact that he uh, one of the funniest parts to me in the book is that uh, when he doesn't want to sign the peace treaty. He just dies. Yeah. <laughs> so he's just like, ah, oh, this version of me will just die. And then, uh, I don't have His to constant hypochondria you. is pretty amusing. Yeah. So I will say that there is a lot of really funny well, stuff. Well, now, that, that is one of those things I'm really confused about. Like, are those all different versions? Or are there only the three versions we see? How does he get the versions of himself back to this reality, there's like, there's, there's when two it comes ways. to Molinari, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds weird of shit stuff. Going on. Yeah. There, there are Robend, um, uh, Molinari's. But there so, aren't. Well, there might be. But, but yeah, there might be. There might be. <laughs> there's time traveling, um, Molinari's pulled out of different universes. So there's, uh, there's different things going on. Which we know that, uh, but we're told that can't happen. Yeah, but that doesn't mean somebody can say like that's not going to happen. But it doesn't mean that does. No, not not somebody. <laughs> like <laughs> Dick says, Dick says it. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I I don't know. That is a confusing aspect of the book because I do think it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, as far as what's happening um, in that regard. Yeah, the inconsistencies are are really weird. But the uh, again with with the humor, I think the. Uh, the the trash cans that the one guy is bringing to life and sending out into the Tijuana streets, the bins as they're called. Did right. that come after I stopped reading? No, that's right in the first chapter. I think. Oh, uh, see, this is why I hate speed reading through these because I miss details. <laughs> but he, so you he's start way earlier, like yeah, like a yeah, week, he, like two weeks earlier. Yeah, he brings. Uh, they have these these bins that carry stuff in the factory. And when they're retired for some reason, he gives them a second life as their own independent being. So there's like these little groups of, of, of containers running around Tijuana that aren't controlled by anything. <laughs> right. And that even though uh, at one point the police, uh, someone says the police are even wondering why there, the, <laughs> there's these containers running around the streets. Without anyone controlling them. Right. So I did find a part where we talk about what Molinari is. Um, okay. What he is on, or what he looks like? Yeah, it's a description of him, but there's more on the next page. It's uh, 123 of the Mariner edition. The flabby, aging, <laughs> utterly discouraged and hypochondriacal Gino Molinari, whom you've met and accepted as the authentic UN secretary. Vestenberg lazily stirred his drink, eyeing Eric. That's the Robin simulacrum, and the robust, energetic figure you witnessed on videotape a short while ago is the living man, and this ruse must necessarily be maintained, of course, to sidetrack no one else but our beloved ally, the Starman. Right. So, um, their suggestion there is that it's a Robant. Yes, but that that's a, uh, 
I think that's like a, a red herring there, right? Right. It's a swindle, right? Yeah, and because then, uh, we're, we're not supposed to trust Festenberg with anything. I like that character, actually. I did too. Yeah, and then so. But I, I wish he was in it more and had more of a part in, in the uh, decision making. And so then the alien takes, and this is one of my favorite scenes in the book when the alien's like, hey, I got a secret, uh, Dr. Sweetson. I'm going to show you the real Molinari. <laughs> and he takes him and he's found him. And then there's the, in the casket, Sabine, uh, lay Gino Golinari, his face locked in agony. He was dead. Blood could be seen, dried drops on his neck. His uniform was torn, stained with mud. Both hands were lifted, fingers writhing as if trained, even now to fight back at who, at whatever, whoever it was that had murdered him. And so he has that, the version that's like, yeah, the, the corpse version. Right. So, it. so how I took this is that there, we are seeing, we are shown three versions. Right. Uh, uh, we're to believe that the one that is assassinated is the original Molinari from this timeline. Right. Our, our main timeline. Right. The second one, which is the sort of, uh, uh, psychic hypochondriac one was taken from another timeline. And that's the second Molinari. And then the untouched, uh, healthy Molinari is taken from a third timeline. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I got out of it. But the, uh, but it, if you take into a, into account the cancer stuff and all the other illnesses, couldn't there be like several more coming in that are also the kind of fi- uh, fat hypochondrial, hypochondriacal, uh, Molinari's? There could be. I, on page 183. Un- unless he's using magic to heal cancer, then, or, or, you know, he's from such a different timeline that this is sort of a, a natural thing that the the human body has come up with. I thought that was an interesting like side side thing where he's Molinari has these magic powers. Well, and then the whole thing with like is he Yeah, because like for me on uh, page one eighty three there's a whole scene that said, uh, how did Golinari end his term in office? The man glanced up, assassinated. Yeah. Shot. Yes, by old-fashioned lead slugs, a fanatic got him because his lenient immigration policy, his letting the Greeks, uh, Greeks settle on Terra. Uh, there was a racist faction scared about polluting the blood if Greeks and humans could interbreed. Yeah, and that's that's also in a different timeline, right? And so, I, what I kind of, one thing that I do really like in this novel is that it's kind of all over the place with. Um, with uh there Molinari could be many things. Yeah. And there's lots of and I think he's like playing with us. Yeah, I'm not even <laughs> saying it's a bad thing and I think it goes against our modern our our modern views to want to know everything. Yeah, that's we want everything to be explained. so explained and factually based and you know, why or have a progression of of facts that this one goes against all of that. You know, there, there is no rhyme or reason. Uh, there's, you can't take, you can't take the antidote back in time, but Molinari can pull other versions of himself through time. So it's a, you know, there's, she can uh, send a letter 
in the past, but it's not really sent because it disappears as soon as she goes to the future. Which I think is a perfect segue to talk about JJ 180. Yeah, um, sure. Which um, is a huge part of the book. And yes, there are contradictions on what it can and cannot do uh, all over the place yeah. in this novel. And, um, and I, I just want to say, guys, too, um, <laughs> I was going to be harder on this novel and I'm enjoying this discussion of it so much. It's <laughs> making me think I liked it better than I did when I was reading it, which what it keeps happening except for cosmic puppets has made me hate it worse but see that's right. an interesting thing because should should your appreciation of a book change ha- change with, with with other people's views with a discussion or well, maybe let uh, me let me rephrase what i'm trying to say well your understanding does well sure but can the book does the book have do to its, stand on its own yeah th- thank you i could not get that out for the life of me uh, i i don't I don't know. I, you know, I I kind of I, I'm kind of hard headed, so my views are my views, and there's really nothing that's going to change how I view things. And sometimes you're just not in the right state. Yeah. To read it, it's like listening to an album that you didn't like, then you listen to it ten years later, and you're like, this is actually really good. Which yeah. happened to me with yeah. Primus's Pork Soda. Really? It happened to me with I, Dark Dark City. That I is one of my hate. top twenty albums. I hated Pork Soda. And then I re-listened to it like five years after I'd listened to it for the first time. I'm like, this is brilliant. And you didn't like Dark City? I When I saw Dark City in the theater, I thought it was stupid. made no sense. I couldn't really? stand it. And That's then, shocking to me. Yeah, right. Well, I was also... What, knowing I you saw now. it in the theater at the time. And yeah. I and then I, I just... I didn't like it. Thought it was bad. And then uh, a couple of years later, somebody was like, what? You didn't like Dark City? Watch it again. And I watched it on DVD, and I was like, "Oh my oh god, my this god. is one of the greatest <laughs> yeah. movies ever made! Why, why did I hate this? Right. Why did and you did? Why did you dislike?" I it? think for the same reason that I'm struggling. Well, you with, got Kiefer Sutherland in there, kind of playing a weird role. And, I, I think I, I thought that was great. Is uh, it because they all looked like a bunch of cinnabites? It, I don't think end, I was kind of a wah, wah, wah. For, I don't think I was prepared for how weird it was going to be, and. Um, I was expecting something a little bit more straightforward. Yeah, it was so think, out there. I think I'm str- – the same thing I'm struggling with the uh, Jeff Vandermeer novel that I'm reading right now, Dead Astronauts. It's just that it may be too surreal. There's times where something might be too surreal for me and then there's other times where I'm in the mood for it. Yeah. And I think when I saw Dark City, I just wasn't in the mood for it. And um, I also wasn't ready for it. Um, I think now – I'm more into that stuff. So. I, I think for me, if I'm listening or reading or watching something that's very challenging, I start to dislike it because I start feeling dumb. <laughs> and then I'll sit on it and then I'll revisit it or I'll start to just think about it. This happened to me with Naked Lunch. I yeah. hated Naked Lunch. The the book, the book or the movie? The book. Okay. And then the more I thought about it and the more I developed <laughs> an appreciation for the writing rather than just being confused – Right, um, rather than caring what was happening. Or... I had to be a writer, like like taking writing seriously for almost a decade before I could go back and appreciate interest. Yeah. yeah, and so I'm kind of struggling like right now with that. I'm reading. Um, I'm, I'm probably eighty percent through with Dead Astronauts by Jeff Vandermeer, mm-hmm. and my thing with that book is it's so surreal and it's so weird that a lot of times when I'm sitting there reading it, I have like a hundred different thoughts trying to make sense of what the book's about that I start coming up with my own 
theories. And a lot of times I, I find myself like grasping for more plot and more to hold on to. Sure. And, and, yeah. And I it, get that. Yeah. And so the first time I saw Dark City, I, I definitely had the same thing. I had that same experience with Hodorowski's The Holy Mountain. The first time I yeah. watched it, I was like, I, I hate this. It doesn't make any sense. I'm confused and it is just a mishmash of nonsense. Now it, I have a now, huge appreciation. Now, how that relates to what we're doing with PKD every month is that a lot of times I, it takes me a little while sitting on the books to really get some of what he's doing. And a lot of times it's talking it out with you guys where well, I'm like, sure. I think, I think what you do much more than what Anthony and I do is you research what the author was going through. Yeah. You so have a you, much different eye for it. So yeah, but you, that hurt you me on this one. You want, <laughs> yeah, on this one. But yeah, but you have a, a deeper understanding of why why the thing was written in the first place. Which I think is why you give it you will typically give the books more leeway than, yeah, than we do. Than we do. Yeah, but in this case it hurt me. It went the other way. Yeah, because I was like so annoyed by all the divorce stuff in right. this book. And uh you know, the fact that he he had and committed you know, just never left me when I was reading this. Sure. You know? Sure. So, so that was but, part. Uh, you but. Have, you have to believe me that Kathy needed to be committed. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, I'm sure Kathy was not actually a fair representation of Anne either. Right. Yeah. Now, that being said. Well, I don't think any of the, the representations. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, David. Yeah. But no. I don't think any of the representations of his wife are no. fair, no. period. No. Well, and a lot of things in this book, uh, w- when we're talking about it, are parts that, like, I read the Amoeba part, but then I just kind of kept going. And then when I went back to make my notes for the episode and I started highlighting it and rereading it, parts were making me laugh again. And, yeah. And I was, and there were parts where I was like, like the going, the, the stuff with the UN secretary, like, it kind of just happened when I was reading it, but I thought more about it when I went back to look at it for notes. Right. So, uh, and is that a fair way to judge the book? I don't know, but I, I think with PKD, um, I think it's fair to have a second judgment because I think, I, I, I think some of the books require, uh, deeper thought. But anyways, well, and I, th- I think we've done that in the past with some of the books that are more popular and some of the books that are less popular. You know, y- y- you, David, with a uh, Doctor Futurity, which Mm-mm. is terrible, it's but you, but terrible. you found points that you, you thought it was good. You yeah. know, and then there's, um, what a Vulcan's hammer, which everyone apparently hates. <laughs> and I, for, I thought, I thought was brilliant. No, I liked Vulcan's you know? hammer. It's yeah, a we, little goofy at times, but, but I liked it. Yeah, we all liked Vulcan's but there, hammer. Like Vulcan's and also hammer. Man in the High Castle. I, Anthony and I thought it was meh. Yeah, I didn't you know? care for Man in the High and Castle. I love Man in the High Castle. But I also, so, I also don't know if I have the intellectual way of looking at certain things to I don't think I can truly appreciate Man in the High Castle the way that a lot of people do. It just doesn't tickle your curiosity. I think you do have the mental acuity to understand that that it's not... You just don't have the interest in that particular It's not written well. It's written (laughs) in a weird style that is only only certain people are going to like that. And I think it was too hyped for me by the time I read it. Well, that's, right, the problem, that's also a thing. Yeah. Which is the problem everyone's, I think, having with 
some people are having with Parasite is that speaking to somebody who saw Parasite before the hype all started, yeah. like I didn't know that there was going to be a big twist in Parasite. So like when it happened, it was way more shocking for me. And, you know, so by the time the, all the hype got around about the movie, it, it, it lost some of its power. And I think with Man in the High Castle, like so many people said, it's brilliant, it's great, well, it won the Hugo. And But I know. also I also don't think that, and this is somewhat of a side tangent, so just bear with me. I think some of the people who don't like Parasite have valid reasons to not like Parasite, just like <laughs> I liked Midsummer, but I also liked it when it was called The Wicker Man. Boom! Oh, um, no, hot take, hot take. Um, no, I'm joking. Midsummer's fine. I like Hereditary more, but um, Me too. I I think that there are certain people who've read and watched enough stuff by the time we get to certain films or books where you you kind of sit back and say, oh, you know, I liked it, but I I've seen it before. I I liked Parasite, but I didn't think Parasite was mind blowing, and I figured there was a twist. But it just, something about Parasite truly didn't do it for me. Is it a bad movie? No, but I think that the yeah, people who are- Yeah, I thought it was are, good. I think the people who are naysaying it have valid criticisms of it. Yeah, I don't. But, but yeah. okay. But, it's not the bomb cast. A, a little, a little, well, it's not, it's not Snowpiercer, <laughs> nice. so suck it. Whoa. Well, no, I think Mother is a better Bong Joon-ho movie. Yeah, I, yeah, I would yeah. agree with that, but yeah. y'all know I love me some Snowpiercer. I mean, I like that Snow- is a good movie. Snowpiercer is good. Underrated. That's yeah. my favorite Tilda Swinton role, too. Really? She has a lot of... She's good in it. So she's great in Constantine. Yep. That's yeah. her that's, and Peter Stromare Peter are Star, the yeah. only good things about that yeah, movie. No, 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 no. I think that movie would have been good if it wasn't miscast. Yeah. You mean if Constantine wasn't miscast? If Constantine yeah. wasn't miscast, it would be a good movie. All I'm saying is someone cast Hugh Laurie as Constantine. The That'd script, everything about Constantine nice. is great, except for Keanu Reeves is miscast. What, yeah. Larry? No, I said nice. Oh, yeah. Hugh I Laurie agree. is my dream John Constantine. All right, sorry. Put some blonde hair on him? Yeah. With some yeah. bunch of gray in it? And just, yeah. Right. He's it, basically house, but hunting demons. Right. <laughs> Fifteen minutes ago, I said, what a great segue <laughs> to JJ 180. Every time you say JJ, I think you're going to say JJ Abrams, though. And please don't. And then I just want to vomit on my shoes when I think of JJ <laughs> Abrams. Yeah. We could maybe do a bonus episode about how we all hated episode nine, but uh, I'll, I'll do it on just how much I we? hate J.J. Abrams. <laughs> oh, he's a broke ass Steven Spielberg. We've been over this. Yeah. Okay. Want to be and a loser. All right. Whoa. <laughs> anyway, uh, I wouldn't go that far. But J.J. One Eighty is a drug. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And One Eighty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and. uh it's first introduced in chapter three, I believe, when Kathy gets it from a uh, cabbie, right? Um, and well, yeah, we follow one of the uh, other employees of the company, and yeah, and he's like, "Hey, hee ho! This is JJ One Eighty. What's that? Some badass shit. <laughs> it's a German name for a drug that's about. To- <laughs> it's German is JJ One Eighty. It's a German name for a drug that's about to be marketed in South America as Frohedadrine. It's not Ja, Ja. Yeah. A German chemical firm invented it. At this point, they think it's a German chemical firm. This is before they found out that the star men made it. Uh, They get it into the U.S. In fact, it's easy to get here in Mexico. Everything's available here in TJ. 
Everything. <laughs> He's got five caps. Um, and when you take it, uh, you experience time differently. You travel in time. I don't know. It's one of those things. <laughs> I was very confused because I, I couldn't decide whether... Uh-oh. Excuse me. Did you, did, are you here to give the podcast the fucking coronavirus? <coughs> no. Right? Coronavirus. Anyways. <laughs> Pause while David chokes to death. All right, I'm better. I made it pretty far into the podcast without coughing. I told you guys I had a cold last week. So. Oh, we're fine. You want to take a little break? No. I, I know. No, we want to finish. We want to finish and go to the bookstore. Well, I got. Then I want to go to Plant Power. Well, I'm gonna. So I guess you're getting a ride home. Awesome, I'll take it. What? Uh, Wait, hey, he's taking his headphones off. Hey, what are you doing? Going to pee. Oh. Okay, so we're all right. Well, we'll we'll keep keep talking. talking. Yeah. All right, uh, JJ one eighty noted hack filmmaker. Was it a German product or was it made by the enemy? Um, Was it made by the Germans? Was it made by the Germans? Uh, was it made by Christoph Waltz? Yeah, so... Oh, this is going to get real bad. So, on page uh, 43 of the Mariner edition, there's some more stuff about JJ-180. I see. Could this JJ-180, or Frohedadrin, as it's also called, could it possibly originate entirely off Terra? Meaning, is this an alien drug? Alien drug? There have been cases of illegal non-terrestrial drugs before. None of them of any importance, derived from Martian flora, mostly, and occasionally from Ganymedean lichens. Lichens? Lichens. Lichens. Lichens? Lichens. I cannot pronounce this word. My girlfriend knows it better than me. I'd read a book about a bunch of Martian drugs. Uh, yeah, so it could have been, yeah, there, there could be all these alien sources. Ganymedian or or Martian dung, but I mean Martian dung's already made uh, fur coats, so that seems <laughs> unlikely. Uh, but you know we have there's references for it being a weapon uh, at least four times in the book, page one, page eighty eight, one ten, one sixty five, and one sixty eight. They're all it's all referenced as a potential drug um, from both sides of the war at one time or another. Which is kind of one of the fun um, parts of how the plot gets played with. Um, as for the effects of it exactly, uh, I have... I can just tell you the effects. You travel to the past, the present, or the future. Yes, but the question is, is that an illusion? or It's are- not, because Molinari pulled actual people to his own timeline. But then the question goes, are you going to an alternate reality or going back in time in your own reality? Well, because he travels laterally through the present, it can't be. It doesn't matter if it's future or past. Right. And then we have the scene with the two. Otherwise, he'd just see himself. And we also have the scene with the two Eric's where the one Eric's like, ooh, you look like shit. They both Uh, say that to each other. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) It, It reminded me of the time traveler's wife. Which, I don't know if you guys have read that book. I saw but, the movie uh, with Eric Bana. <laughs> well, right. that's, I mean, it, it kind of followed the same thing. But the basically the first meeting he has with himself, instead of like in this one where they they like have this sort of standoffish, confrontational relationship, the first thing they do when he meets himself 
from the past is they fuck. And I <laughs> thought that was amazing. I, when himself. I was reading, yeah, he fucks himself. Nice. I mean, it's just another form of masturbation. And, and I thought that was amazing. So it, it, this scene in this book. I would definitely book, not be into myself. This scene reminded like me time. of that. <laughs> Yeah, I'd I think me. you could do. I think if you could do better, I, I would go back in time. I would fuck me. I'd fuck me in the immortal words fuck of me. Buffalo Bill. I would fuck I'd me fuck just me. for the experience. Yeah, same. Just to know. Say, I when someone tells someone says, "Hey, go fuck yourself," I'd be like, "I've been there, done that, done it." <laughs> All right, moving. <laughs> okay, I'm really sorry. I, 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 uh, I you I, opened first, that door, David. Open that door. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyways, so that's really weird. That's my Black Mirror episode. <laughs> but he uh, he gave himself so many instructions, he had to know that there was no way he would follow the same route. Right. That it couldn't be the same reality. You know, right. because there's, it's impossible to know what you're supposed to do and then do everything properly. Anytime you meet yourself in this in this world, it has to be a different reality. A different universe. Which, by the way, doing my research on this book, I found out the first use of multiverse in, uh, in science fiction was used by Michael Moorcock in 1963. In what novel? Shit, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I did zero research. Yeah. But, what would, oh, I thought you were going to know the name of the book and I was going to punch you. Uh, uh, I mean, I could look it up. Um, well, that's, that's it is cool. Wikipedia, so who knows? What, what would um, what would the Michael Moore uh, cock podcast be? More cockers, Ooh. <laughs> exactly that. More cock, more cocks, more cocks. More yeah, I don't cocks. think I don't think that's a good one. Um, well, then fuck you, Larry. <laughs> All right, so we the one last topic of the main themes that we have not talked about my more cock much about the book. Is the uh, aspect of the war? We've talked a little bit about it, but um, this is not a. As we said earlier, it's not really a side for side with the Vietnam War, but it is interesting to know at that. Well, it kind of is because the Vietnam War was happening far away. The war in this book is far away, right? The whole time, and we're just you know it's it's not in the middle of it. it, Yeah, it's not really a present war in, in the novel. It's a war that's happening elsewhere. Yeah. So that is very similar to the Vietnam War. It connects in interesting ways to the fact that even though they make fur coats and TJ, they, they're, they're getting government contracts to make weapons and things like for the war. Um, Side tangent. According to the internet, the American philosopher and psychologist William James used the term multiverse in 1895, but in a different context. The term was first used in fiction in its current physics context by Michael Moorcock in his 1963 sci- science fiction adventures novella, The Sundered Worlds. Yeah, that's the one. Interesting. Now I want to read it. Right. I'll yeah. get to it right after Anthony reads the final blog. We're going to do a side <laughs> podcast called, like, Ballardians, so I can talk about how much I love J.G. Ballard. Well, you can and do we'll Dick force, and Jason. We'll force D. Harlan Wilson to be on it. You right. can do Dick and Jason episodes whenever you want. Sir. Oh, I can? Yeah. 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 Let's yeah. do some Ballard, y'all. Yeah, I'm with you. Ooh, yeah. I love yeah. some Ballard. Yeah. That, that's, that's called Dick and Jason. We're doing a bunch of them. Talk about concrete. 
Island. Well, we definitely have to have D. Harlan Wilson on at some point anyways, because he's a huge dickhead as it is. And I want to read his Ballard book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there's a part here about the war, uh, that I want Anthony to read. At the wall map, Minister Ferneski said, Secretary, we must attend to this decisive detail before we can continue. Terran troops do not stand up well against the Reeks' new homeostatic bomb. Hence, I would like to relieve a million and a half of my own factory workers and put them into uniform, replacing them in empire factories with Terrans. This is an advantage for you, Secretary, in that Terrans will not be fighting and dining... Oh, sorry. (laughs) They will not be fighting and dining. They will not be fighting and dying in the line, but will be safe inside empire factories. This is one of the most interesting parts of the book to me politically, because... Uh, this is where it gets really clearly like a side thing for Vietnam because um, what was going on in Vietnam was that the U.S. soldiers over there were getting creamed because they were fighting uh, against a guerrilla warfare of people who were in their homeland who could dig tunnels and fight nasty. And Oh, those tunnels were mostly already there. Right, I mean, because they had fought they had the French. Been fighting, yeah, yeah, they had been fighting for a long what time. What a horrible thing to be forced into into a war that has nothing to do with what you care about. You yeah. Care about. Yeah. And so we had, well, people- that's, that's not how the war was framed. Of course it was framed as communists were taking over the world and it was up to us to stop them. So yeah. And why we- there was a hero element put into the, the, the war that but really shouldn't have been there. But I thought that that was a really cool part of the book that like in the frame of science fiction was talking about the Vietnam war. Now, see, the way I looked at that, uh, I, again, I wasn't thinking about the Vietnam War at sure. all, but I, I looked at it as them, as the Lilliputians saying, you know, you are, we're going to take your soldiers away from the front and make them slave labor. That's how I looked at it. Well, that's true too, but because was- then they're, they wouldn't, it was, it was kind of, Taking the control of the war more away from Terrans. Yeah, but I think the idea that they, that the Terrans weren't able to fight the war well was talking about Vietnam and the slave labor sure. thing is a separate issue. But I do think that that comes into where you're talking about how war and capitalism are kind of tied together. And, um, I just think that these are aspects that we could have easily missed in talking about this novel that there are lots of nice little political allegories throughout. Right. And those are things that, that add to my overall you know, enjoyment. I would say for a book that I, I I never even knew the title of when I was an initially reading Phil K. Dick. <laughs> right. This one is much better than uh, a lot of the other ones we've read. It has sort of all of the all of the Dick elements and and sort of put in the right order in the right way. Yeah, it's got the flaws and everything, but this one is is sort of like quintessential. Right. Well, that's a good segue into our final thoughts. Um because you're already kind of getting there and I think you know the interesting thing is I think this is not one of his more well-known ones, but I think within Dick's scholarship, I think people have a higher regard for this one than some of the other ones. Yeah, probably. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I think for good reason. Uh, I think because he was going through hard times in his life, I think some of those signs are, are there in the book. But 
You know, upon this is one that I think will sit with you and you can think about it later. And, um, uh, you know, yes, the, the last chapter is kind of useless, but you know, <laughs> no, it's not kind of useless. It's really useless, but I, I, I would say the only, the only thing that, uh, really matters about the last chapter is bringing the bins back because they have <laughs> that little confrontation in the alleyway. Yeah. But that's it. <laughs> but I think. I don't think, for me, a novel can have one or two little flaws like that and, and not, not really overall hurt it. So, um, I am going to give this book four out of five, uh, Robant Molinaris. <laughs> um, and I originally rated it as three, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lift, I'm gonna give it one more, uh, just because sure. I, I think, um, there's a lot of good stuff that came out when we were discussing the book overall. Yeah, I would, uh, I would say that, uh, I think one of the best things about this is Kathy. I think her, char- <laughs> her character, uh, although immensely evil in, in just her motivations and her reasoning and everything like that, she is a well drawn out character. I, I think she, she handles things in a maybe not a way I I would ever think of handling things, but in a somewhat natural kind of way. And uh, and I think Eric Sweetscent was not the saddest sack ever <laughs> until that last chapter. Not the right? saddest sack ever. <laughs> he he actually made decisions. He did things. He moved forward. <sighs> he he wasn't just kind of accepting his fate until that last chapter where he's like, oh, I'm just going to kill myself because, because my wife isn't cool anymore. So I, I, I think the book mostly works. Molinari is a great character. Even the old man. I, I always like the, the old man with the fake parts character that Dick's been doing over the past like five novels. So I, I think it's a, uh, it deserves um three and a half um Mars bat shit amoebas. <laughs> I thought you were gonna go with the bids. I was I was close to that. <laughs> Anthony. <clears throat> I don't know if I I can't really fairly rate a book I haven't finished. If I were if somebody said you can no longer finish this book, please rate it now, I'd say yeah, three out of five cowardly cabs. Um, right. <laughs> I do think that a lot of Dick's books take too long to get started. So I started getting way more interested in what was happening when we do start to uncover that there are different Molinaris that yeah, she's dosed her husband with this drug. Um, I know you talked to me right when you were on the precipice of yeah. it, uh, of it getting better, that, that page 75 or whatever. And I, and I think that there are all the dick trappings here that we're pretty used to by now. So yeah, if, if, I, if I have to rate a book, I didn't finish three out of five cowardly cabs. And realistically, having talked to you guys about it and then having Larry tell me about it before you got here, David, it'd probably stay about three. Cause, cause I liked it, what I read, but it, none of it was mind blowing. Okay. So, um, I think the Molinari twist uh, was good enough to give it that extra half point for me. Yeah. But. Now the question comes, uh, what would we do 
if we were going to do a movie. But before we do that... Oh, wait, there's a before we do that? Yes. Really? In 2011, there was a press release from Lilla... Lily, Lilla Nine, Ninth Production, and a Leopard, Electric Shepherd Productions. To be fair, that's probably Lila. Lila Ninth, yeah, whatever. It's a production company. Uh, had optioned the rights to now wait for last year with Ted Cooper, Cupper, it's with a K, K-U-P-P-E-R, tapped to write the screenplay, and there was a, Barry M. Osborne, who was a producer on Lord of the Rings, was supposed to be a producer, and that they were looking for a director in the third quarter of 2012, and that's where the project died. They um, couldn't find a director? They couldn't find a director, apparently. Huh. And, but apparently a script was written for Now Wait for Last Year. Uh, Is it online? I don't know if you can find it. Well, call out. To our fans. Yeah. If so anyone has seen this script. Yeah, we would love to to know. Yeah, we'd love to see it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's not as easy to find as that Duel of the Fates script yeah. that's going around <laughs> for Star Wars. Um, <laughs> but, uh, which I still haven't read. I want to read because I think it sounds way better. It sounds fantastic. It sounds much better. Uh, Did you see the art? The uh, concept art? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. I wish we got that movie. But anyways, um, so what would what would you do? Did you have any thoughts about uh, film for now, wait for last year? Looks like Larry has some. Well, obviously, <laughs> it, it has to be a lot more about the war. Agreed. Uh, you have to show the front. You have to be there. You have to see the war happening, you know. And, and I... I'm torn between just dropping the everything about Virgil and the and all that stuff and just starting our hero as the doctor of the prime minister or whatever he is. UN Secretary General. UN Secretary General. The ball. And, and then going from there, but like spending at least 15 minutes on the war and, and going back and forth, sort of West Wing kind of style. Yeah. I would and, definitely and, focus and, on Molinari and yeah, the doctor. Yeah, but, but you'd go to the front and you would see it happening. And, and th that I would tie that. in much more closely. And then you'd find out that Kathy is taking drugs and that whole thing. <coughs> and, uh, so from that point, I think I would continue much the same way as, as the book went. Cause I, I, I feel like if once you get to page, 100 the book kind of flows and then you drop that last chapter entirely yeah i would um <coughs> excuse me uh, a movie about jj 180 and the and the un secretary general in the war front does sound good it sounds like something you could do i would focus on the president and the doctor and um you know kind of i would lose the divorce stuff like since I no, I wouldn't lose the divorce stuff at all. Yeah, see, I I would have another source for the drug coming into the the relationship between the doctor and the president. See, I I love that scene so much that third chapter scene uh, that I would. Oh, not where lose she that. gets the drugs. I in fact, yeah. I would kind of I I would kind of think to have Richard Linkletter do his rotoscope stuff in this in this one just because of that one scene. In the JJ 180 scenes? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can see that. And, uh, and make them sort of, you know, animated and, and weird and sort of like, you never, you don't know if they're fantasy or reality, sort of like, you know, like the book does. Right. I would, I just would focus more on the doctor and the, and the UN secretary general. But, uh, Anthony, any thoughts on, well, do you have an idea for a director or? Well, link letter. <laughs> link letter. <laughs> well, he's not the only one that does rotoscope now. Um, right. Yeah, I would probably right, want. There's been a couple of really good things lately with rotoscope. So. Yeah, Undone, the TV show on Amazon was great. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I would take some of that team uh, and see if they would could do uh, Now Wait for Last Year with. And uh, I would, yeah, definitely focus more on the war happening and like, you know, a ticking clock. Some try to figure out something, and, it, and it's tie. like such a big war that has yeah. been going on for so long. You get have these massive, you know, they they have these CG scenes with all the like computer generated soldiers that look different and stuff, and having these bug soldiers and the and the super tall uh, uh, star men and stuff. It, it would look great. And I would want to do the and humans, the and sci-fi look, man. be a little retro. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah it would be cool. Uh, so, it, so it would sort of be like a, a Spider-Man Beyond the Universe or whatever into Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, into the Spider-verse? sure, whatever. Uh, where where there's different animation styles. Great right. movie. Yeah, it's a good movie. Yeah, it is a really good movie. <laughs> uh, any thoughts on uh, movie treatment, Anthony? Not anything that's terribly different from yours. I would keep the divorce stuff, uh, and I would, I don't think I'd get rid of anything in in particular. I think I'd have a pretty standard approach that combines both of your ideas into one. So, no. So, uh, obviously Electric Shepherd wasn't able to get it going before with uh, with Sir Ted's script, so I think they should hire us. Yeah. We can do that, yeah. Yeah, we could totally do this We one. can totally do that. Just, uh, you got, got our number, Isa. Uh, <laughs> You know how to reach us on, uh. Is it Isa or Isa? Isa. Isa? Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, and, um, speaking of Electric Shepherd, I am almost done with season three of Man the High Castle, but that's besides the point. Um, so we're almost done here now. Um, did you say Electric Shepherd? Electric Shepherd, that's the name of their production company. All right, whatever. No, Electric Shepherd is the production company. Got it. That, uh, uh, Isa does. So, um, <clears throat> that controls the rights for most of the PKD stuff. Um, so, yeah, um, what's next? Uh, Anthony? Anthony? Why are you asking me that? Okay, well, that's a, well, let's get into it because it's a little confusing, the next release. Yeah. By it, PKD. Is it Lies Inc.? Is, is it, it Li- the Unteleported Man? <laughs> or is, is it, it both? both? <laughs> Uh, that is the problem. Uh, so what happened was in 1966, there, uh, Philip K. Dick- David, what was happening? Oh, oh. for fuck. Whoa. <laughs> in 1966, <laughs> uh, there was a, a short novel published by PKD called The Unteleported Man, which later he wrote a partial sequel to. Yeah. And they were combined to make a novel called Lies, Inc. in the 80s. So what we're going Cocaine's to- a hell of a drug. <laughs> right. So what we're going to do 
is try to cover both next time. Yeah, I am, I am getting both, uh, an unteleported man copy and a lysink copy. So hopefully I can, you know, I'll read one and skim the other and, and then see what the difference is. And, and hopefully you'll do the same, David. Yeah, I'm going to try to do at least some research on that. Yeah. My understanding is that everything that's in Unteleported Man is in Lysink. It's just, it has more. It just has a a section put (coughs) right in the middle of it. Yeah. So, Lysink. So next time on Dickheads, in a wry, paranoid vision of the future, overpopulation has turned cities into crammed industrial anthills. For those sick of this dystopian reality, one corporation... Trails of Hoffman, Inc. promises an alternative. Take a teleport to Whale's Mouth, a colonized planet billed as the supreme paradise. Not a whale's vagina. The only The frontier! The only catch is that you can never come back. Never! When a neurotic man named (laughs) Hoke, named Ra... Ra... (laughs) Yeah, that's a tough name. Rachmael Ben Applebaum... Fuck you. Bob Applebaum. Discovers that the promotional films of happy crowds cheering their newfound existence on Whale's Mouth are faked. Oh, hello, Penultimate Truth Part 2. He decides to pilot a escape ship on the 18-year journey there to see if anyone wants to return. 18 years! So join us next time on Dickheads. Alright. That was amazing. Yeah, so Lysink next time, and we'll have some more Dick Adjacent and some other things coming out in the near future. Yeah. So um, keep it paranoid. Be all paranoid. Good night. And shit. Stay paranoid. <laughs>